Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah has been giving a message at the temple gate. And at the end of chapter 8, or at the beginning of chapter 8, he concludes his thought. It says, at that time, the time of judgment, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. They shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and which they have served and after which they have walked, which they have sought and which they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. Then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain of this evil family, who remain in all the places where I have driven them, says the Lord of hosts. At the end of the message, he describes a time of catastrophe. It's the end result of judgment. At that time is the time when the northern kingdom of Babylon will come and invade Jerusalem. And it will be not only catastrophic, but it will be unbelievably bad. When it says they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets, the implication is that the that they will be slaughtered. That the Valley of Tophet, which was earlier made reference to in chapter seven, that the corpses of the people in verse 33 will be food for the birds of heaven, that it will be a slaughter of such gigantic proportions that the valley itself will be filled with the bodies of the dead. It says they shall spread them before the sun and the moon and the host of heaven in broad daylight. And remember that one of the most disgusting and catastrophic things that could happen to a Jewish person was to have your bones dug up and desecrated. It's to desecrate the dead. And when it says they shall do it before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven, the implication being it will be done in broad daylight, but it will also be done in moonlight. It will take place during the day. It will take place during the night. And, it, and he makes contrast with that which they have loved and which they have served. In other words, idolatry had run so deep in apostate Judea, in apostate Jerusalem, that they began to worship the gods of the sun and the moon and the stars, which they have loved and which they have served and after which they have walked. You know, in the Bible, it never really talks so much about belief systems as behavior. That's why the Bible uses terms like walk. It doesn't say of what they thought or what they wrote necessarily, but how they actually lived their lives and they have sought and that they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse or trash on the face of the earth. Then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain of this evil family. In other words, in the day of catastrophe, in the day of judgment, when the Babylonian armies come, when they slaughter the host, when they tear down the walls, when they destroy the people, everyone is going to say, I wish I were dead. I wish I never lived to see this day happen. And now, from verse 4 all the way to the end of the chapter, a new thought emerges. Look what it says in verse 4. Moreover, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? Why has this people slidden back Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I listened and heard, but they did not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course. 
as the horse rushes into the battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times, and the turtle dove, the swift, and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. Remember what Jeremiah does. He turns over and over and over again to the theme of repentance. And so over and over and over again, I remind you of what that means. Repentance includes a change of mind, a willingness to do good rather than evil. Repentance means not only a change of mind, but a change of heart. Instead of loving sin, we set our affections on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart. There's a change of life because the change of mind and the change of heart results in a different way of living. That you live differently. Warren Wearsby in his commentary, Be Decisive, hits the nail on the head and asks the question, quote, Why did the nation not turn back to God? In answering that question, Jeremiah dealt with three aspects of the stubborn people's refusal to obey God. And in this particular passage, from verse 4 to verse 8 through uh, verse 9, all the way to the end of the chapter, he's going to talk about the people's refusal to repent as being, number one, irrational. Number two, rooted in deception. But it's the worst kind of deception. It's self-deception. Not only are the people's refusal to repent irrational and rooted in deception. Number three, it's absent any real understanding of the consequences. And so that's the point that Jeremiah is going to be making in this passage and for the rest of the chapter. Refusal to repent. It doesn't make sense. Refusal to repent. It's because someone's deceived. Refusal to repent. You don't understand the consequences. And by the way, the false teachers and the false leaders didn't help matters. The false teachers deceived the people by twisting God's law, by perverting and distorting God's word. And here's what Jeremiah promises. They will be judged. They will be shamed. They will be taken captive. And so it begins with the refusal to repent, being irrational. In verse four, it says, moreover, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? It's it's a, it's a, a truth. It's an aphorism. Uh, let me give you an example. What goes up must come down. You know, you know what that means. We, we have a statement. Well, when you throw something into the air, it comes down. When a baby falls, when a baby is learning to walk, what does the baby do? The baby gets up. When you mature, you get up again and again and again. When you're growing up, you fall. You get up, you fall, you get up. It's reasonable that when you fall, you get up. A person who's going in the wrong direction, when you discover that you're going in the wrong direction, you stop. If you're on I-70 going east, and you want to go to Utah, and you're in Nebraska, do you really have to get all the way to St. Louis before you go, I'm going in the wrong direction? And if you've ever driven anywhere and you were going in the wrong direction and somebody said, we're going in the wrong direction, you stop and you turn around. That's what reasonable people do. And so the Lord is asking a series of questions and the questions are clear and direct. The idea in this particular passage is why won't you be sensible? Why won't you be reasonable? Sin is irrational. Righteousness is reasonable. And so once again, Jeremiah uses that word shub over and over again. It means to return or to turn. And it, 
in the Hebrew language, it always meant to turn from something and to turn into a di different direction. The Hebrew text actually reads, Im Yashub Wilo Yashub. Literally, it says, if one turn, will he not turn? It's a play on words. It's his way of saying, won't you go in a different direction? And by the way, both in the first instance, the word means sin. In the second instance, it means repent. The idea being, if you know, if you're headed in a different direction away from God, away from his love, away from his grace, away from his mercy, away from his confidence, Stop and go in a different direction. Rabbi Kimchi interpreted this. If man turns from evil, shall not the Lord turn from judgment? The, imp the implication being, if you stop what you're doing, if you go in a different direction, won't God save you? Won't he forgive you? Won't he provide for you? And so in verse 5 it says... Why has this people slidden back? Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding. They hold fast to deceit. The, the word here to hold fast means to embrace with all of your might. It's like holding on to something and refusing to let go. They refuse to return. And so once again, he's using that expression. The people were following a personal path of deception by the false teachers. The people weren't entirely blameless in this matter. The false teachers and the false leaders were leaving them astray. They allowed themselves to be deceived so that they could follow a path of self-indulgence to satisfy, justify personal pleasure. And all this was so that they could live a life apart from God. They wanted to indulge sin, not turn from sin. And so... When it says, why has this people slidden back? Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding. The idea is they keep going further and further and further away. And at the core of the deceit that's mentioned is this issue of idolatry. The people didn't want to give up their idols. This isn't just a philosophical or theological embracing of a lie. This was the ultimate lie. The ultimate lie that the false gods and the false goddesses could satisfy. And that's a lie that continues to this day. It's the deceit that sin is helpful instead of harmful. That rebellion is helpful instead of harmful. And so the people refuse to give up their idols because what do idols do in effect? It gives you an opportunity to find some sort of satisfaction apart from God and apart from God's remedy. And so over and over again, the theme in the Bible is you're looking in the wrong place. You're going in the wrong direction. You're not going to find love and you're not going to find satisfaction and you're not going to find help and you're not going to find hope apart from God's love and truth. And so in verse six, it says. I listened. Heard. But they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into the battle. Down through the centuries, the Lord had listened patiently in mercy, in love. He's waiting. He's waiting for the people to call out in repentance. He's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting for the people to say, my heart is wrong. My attitude is wicked. My actions are selfish. He's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting for the people to say, idolatry doesn't work. Sin doesn't work. Selfishness doesn't work. I'm ready to turn from my sin. I'm ready to honor God. That's what he was waiting for. He waited in love. He waited in mercy. He waited in patience. He was waiting for them to cry out in repentance. And no one would do it. 
the, the statement is no one was willing to ask the most basic question. What have I done? What have I done? How have I hurt you? How have I offended you? Why is there a problem between me and God? And of course, the reoccurring theme in the Bible is sin has separated us from God. Our sin has offended God. Our sin has created a chasm, a vast void that can only be bridged by God himself. By a sacrifice that he himself would make. The idea that is if you truthfully, legitimately, in reality, cry out to God and say to God, what have I done? The Lord's willing to respond. This is what you've done. And this is how it's affected us. But even though you've done this, guess what? I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing to have you and, and to hold you. The Lord, think about this for a moment. The Lord was waiting for the prayer of repentance, but the prayer never came. Not only did the people refuse to pray, not only did they refuse to repent, but he uses the illustration, everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into battle. In other words, he's making the statement, but they galloped like a horse. The idea and the image was just like a person rides a horse into battle. And by the way, if a, a horse charges into battle, it will live for about 15 minutes. It's completely oblivious to the fact that it's going to die. It has no idea that the person who's riding him or her is leading them to a, a path of destruction. The horse has no idea that it's about to die. And so it is true of the sinner. The sinner has no idea that they're galloping towards destruction. But what's the takeaway for you? What's the takeaway for me? In part, it's the idea that God is waiting patiently and eagerly for a prayer of repentance. If you're wondering, if you're ever wondering, God, what are you doing up there? What are you thinking about? I'm waiting. What are you waiting for? I am waiting for you to acknowledge the condition in your heart. I'm waiting for you to confess your sin. I'm waiting for you to express a willingness to turn from it. I'm waiting for you to say, I don't have control over this. I don't have a cure for this. I don't have a solution for this. I'm waiting. What's God waiting to hear? I don't have a satisfying solution to the problem of my guilt and my sin and my wickedness. Will you take care of it? That's what he's waiting to hear. He's waiting for you to say that so that he can say, I'm willing to forgive you. And I'm willing to demonstrate to you that I'm willing to forgive you here in his love. And that while we were yet sinners, Jesus dies on the cross. You see, rather than hiding your sin or covering your sin, ignoring your sin or pretending like it isn't a problem, he's waiting. And that becomes an important point. That God has the solution to our problem. And in verse 7 it says, Even the storks in heaven know the appointed times, and the turtle dove and the swift and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. And by the way, the judgment here of the Lord is really, the word translated judgment means ordinance. Or law. The point that is being made is the people show less understanding than birds. Birds instinctively know where to go. And by the way, in the land of Palestine, the swallows often return or remain, I should say, for the winter. Where I grew up in Southern California, there's a place called San Juan Capistrano. And it's famous for the place where the swallows come. And so the return of the swift is, is sudden and, and, and dramatic. And so in the land of Palestine, they would watch the migration of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the birds. Here, again, the judgment is mishpat. It's translated law in chapter 5, verse 4. But I'm going to suggest something to you. Here, mishpat 
it means the judgment of the Lord, but it's not just simply the judgment that's coming of the nation that's getting ready to invade the land here. I think what it means is everything that God has said and done. In other words, here, the judgment means everything that God has faithfully revealed to you that he will do. And that means everything. The idea being, if you turn from your sin, I'll forgive you. That's a revelation. If you trust me and you don't trust yourself, you'll be fine. If you turn from your sin and you turn to me, it's going to be fine. I think that that's part of the point. And so, again, he uses that contrast of the birds knowing how to get where they're going. I was reading in a book um, called Evidence or A Closer Look at the Evidence. They were they were making this point. There was an illustration that they gave. It says, quote, modern airplanes navigate electronically. They pick up radio or satellite signals and complicated equipment translates the signal to tell the pilots what his or her location is. But for years, we have known that birds can navigate across great distances without any mechanical aids. In one test of this incredible ability, a number of Manx shearwaters, which nest off the coast, Coast of Wales were tagged and released at different points far beyond their usual range. One was turned loose in Boston, some 3,200 miles from home. In just 12 and a half days, the bird returned to its nest, traveling 250 miles a day, starting from a place thousands of miles from where it had never been before. What's more, Based on the known speed of the bird, it must have flown directly home across the open ocean. No one knows how they did this. Could the incredible navigational system of birds have just happened? Both the Bible and science indicate otherwise. Isn't that interesting? Animals, birds... Created by God. They know if they're going in the wrong direction, how to turn and go in the right direction. The point that is being made is creation knows how to find its way home. Do you? Do you know how to find your way home? Do you know how to find your way back if you're lost? If you're empty, if you're dark, if you're estranged, if you have fallen away from the Lord, that's the idea. And look what it says in verse 8. The refusal to repent is based on self-deception. In verse 8 it says, how can you say, we're wise and the law of the Lord is with us. Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. The people, remember earlier in chapter 7, they said, we have the temple of God. The temple of God is the place where the sacrifices of God take place. We have the right religion and we have the right temple. And if you have the right religion and the right temple, then you're going to be fine. And remember what the Lord said. Guess what? I'm going to tear down that temple. Then they boasted that they had the law of the Lord with them. And look, the false pin of the scribe is working falsehood. Here's the idea is they said, look, we have the temple and we have the law here, the, the law means the Bible. It means the written revelation. But by the way, is it possible to have a Bible and abuse the Bible? Is it possible to read the Bible and say, I don't care what it says? Is it possible to look at the Bible and read what the Bible says and do exactly the opposite of what the Bible says? Does the simple possession of the Bible ensure that you're going to walk with God? No. And that's part of the point. They had boasted that they had the law. Jeremiah's attention seems to be focused on the scribes. Look, the false pin of the scribe. Here the scribe is the religious leaders. Warren Wiersbe was right when he wrote, quote, Possessing the scripture is not the same as practicing the scripture, unquote. Does the mere presence of a Bible keep a nation from crumbling or falling? 
I've got to tell you something. We live in a nation and we live in a country where there have been more Bibles published and more Bibles printed and more Bibles distributed than ever before in the history of humanity. And the Bible has never been less read, less followed. As a matter of fact, does having a Bible keep your family from falling apart? Not if you just simply have a Bible, not if you just simply have it and you never read it and you never begin to discern the principles that are in it and you never want to follow it. That's the idea. The possession of a Bible and the profession of faith and the practice of Christians has never been wider than their unbelieving family and friends. So if you have a Bible and your neighbor doesn't, if you have a Bible and your mother, your father, your brother and your sister, they also have a Bible and you both do exactly the same thing. That is nothing that is in the Bible. It's not going to save you. Jesus in the New Testament asks the people to look at what is written. But then he says, have you not read Throughout the New Testament, we find Jesus saying over and over again, haven't you ever read in the Bible that when God created them, he created them male and female? Haven't you ever read in the Bible that this was God's plan, that a man should leave his mother and, and father and cleave to the woman and, and that there should be unity? Haven't you ever read in the Bible where it was never God's plan for divorce, but it was always God's plan for unity in a marriage? Haven't you ever read that trust and respect and affection were, were supposed to be the key ingredients to making life possible? So Jesus basically says, when you're looking in the Bible, he, he's asking you not to just simply read what the Bible says, but he's asking you to look at the heart and the intent and the spirit of what is being said. The Lord Jesus is way more severe than Jeremiah with the religious leaders. If you have a chance... Look in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Look in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And look at the indictment that Jesus brings to the religious leaders who have the scripture, but they twist it and distort it and pervert it and reinterpret it to mean something that it never meant. One Bible teacher writes, quote, the false prophets who claimed to be writing and speaking in the name of the Lord deceived the kingdom of Judah. They were men whose personal lives were godless, whose hearts were covetous, and whose remedies for the problems of the nation were useless. Their ministry was popular because they majored on the superficial and marketed whatever good news the people wanted to hear. See chapter 5, verse 12, chapter 14, verse 13, chapter 27, verse 8, chapter 28, verses 1 through 17. Jeremiah pictures these men as deceitful physicians in chapter 6, verse 14, chapter 8, verse 11, empty wind, chapter 5, verse 13, dispensers of chaff, chapter 23, 28, ruthless, selfish shepherds, chapter 23, verse 1, infecting people and spreading diseases, chapter 23, verse 15. God had not sent these so-called prophets, chapter 14, verse 14, chapter 23, verse 18, chapter 21. 9 verse 9. In other words, they said, we're prophets from God and we're here to help. Okay. And here's what God says. You're fine just the way you are. and You have nothing to worry about. Your sin doesn't matter. Your rebellion doesn't matter. Your rejection doesn't matter. Because you're religious. You have a temple. And you have a book. And you have a heritage. You're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God has a plan and a purpose and he's going to fulfill the plan and the purpose. And by the way, does God have a plan and a purpose? Yes. Is God going to fulfill the plan and purpose? Yes. So when you have a message that's somewhat right, can it be completely wrong? Yeah. If you ignore the other parts of the message. And since the other part of the message for Jeremiah was, here's God's message to the people. 
look, I'm trying to work with you. I'm trying to work with you. I'm trying to get you to a place where you understand that it isn't just about the externals and it isn't just about religious kinds of activities. It's about from the heart, knowing and loving and walking with God. Here's the problem. If you have false teachers, false prophets, false spiritual leaders, and you decide to follow the false prophet, the false teacher, the false spiritual leader, will you become like the person who leads you if you believe what they have to say? I think one of the most perfect examples of that is the recent rapture debate over the fact that this guy, Harold Camping, said, hey, guess what? Sell everything that you have because the end of the world is coming and a massive exodus is going to take place. Uh, leave your job, sell your stuff, buy billboards, uh, take out a full page ad in USA Today because after May 21st, there is no May 22nd. And by the way, did people wake up and did the sun come up and was it another day? And again, in a moment of honesty and truth, were there people who believed him and followed him and they acted based on what he said to them? Here's one of the most disturbing things that I could ever say to you. You will become like the people you follow. And it is disturbing because it puts a great onus on me, particularly if you're following me. This is why I'm asking you not to follow me. This is why I'm asking you to open up your Bible and read your Bible and see if these things are so. This is why I'm asking you to examine everything I say in light of God's word. This doesn't exonerate me because the Bible says don't be many teachers among you knowing that you're going to ensure the stricter judgment. If I beg you and plead with you to honor God and follow God and listen to God and follow Jesus and obey Jesus, does that in any way get me off the hook for doing weird and wicked things? No, I still have to be accountable to God. And that's the point. The people were following godless leaders. Jeremiah didn't seem to have very many followers. And he had fewer friends. Particularly if followers and friends are indicated by the amount of people who say, we believe you, Jeremiah. We're standing with you, Jeremiah. We're, we believe everything that you've said and we're going to do everything that you say that we should do. In verse 9, it says, the wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and taken. Behold, they've rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Here's the idea. The spiritual leaders were grouped into three divisions. There were prophets. There were priests. And here, there were there's wisdom or the wise wisdom sought to discern our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. The wise didn't claim direct revelation like the prophets or represent the people to God like the priests. But the wise were those people who said, I recognize the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. I recognize that the glory of God and the reverence of God is something that we should do. So the wise produced books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the apocryphal books of Ecclesiasticus and the wisdom of Solomon. So in a sense, the Old Testament writers respected people who were willing to be wise, that is, to think about what the Bible says and how that should encourage us to honor God and pursue godliness. And the word of the Lord is the Torah. In other words, what observant Jews considered all of God's commandments. The scribes would play a major role in the New Testament narratives later on. But uh, in Psalm 19.7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Jesus said in Luke 11.52, woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key to knowledge. In other words, 
They would talk about the Bible. But then they would find all kinds of reasons why they shouldn't believe it or obey it. Paul, the apostle, wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, and in verses 15 and 16, Our sufficiency is from God, who has qualified us to be ministers of a new covenant, not in a written code, but in the Spirit. For the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The implication being... If you will turn away from your sin and you will turn to God and you will trust him in Christ. You'll begin to understand what you're reading. Maybe there was a time in your life where that actually happened, where you trusted Jesus as your savior. And then you opened up the Bible and then you said, I can't believe what this thing is saying. Look what the Bible is saying. How come nobody ever told me that this was in the Bible? And someone says, your mother says, your father says, I told you it was in the Bible. Your father says, I told you it was in the Bible. Your grandma, your grandpa says, I told you it was in the Bible. But how come I never saw it before? How come I never understood it before? You know, anyone can get a Bible practically for free. But in order to really have a Bible, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything in the sense that I'm now willing to read it and I'm now willing to follow it and I'm now willing to obey it. In order to really embrace God's wisdom, you have to come to the place where human wisdom fails you. And you're willing to say, guess what? Humanity and human wisdom and human folly has left me empty. I'm now ready to believe what God's word has to say. I think true wisdom incorporates love for God and then a passionate devotion to the will of God. And so in verse 10, it says, therefore, I will give their wives to others. And their fields to those who will inherit them. Because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. He's already said this in chapter 6. Therefore, I will give their wives to others. In other words, for the people who survive, the invaders are going to come in and their families are going to be destroyed. Their fields to those who will inherit them. Because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. They're all greedy. From the prophet to the priest, the leadership, everyone deals falsely. I know it sounds like Washington, D.C., doesn't it? It might as well say from the Republicans to the Democrats to the independents. It looks like everyone's greedy. In verse 11, it says, for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. Saying peace, peace. The implication here is that the daughter of my people is Jerusalem. And you have to understand something. Here, it is an expression of tenderness and sensitivity and affection. What am I saying? How do you have anger and sympathy? Tenderness all in the same sentence. He's saying that the false prophets are saying peace, shalom, shalom. The idea being, no, you're not really hurt. You're not really broken. It's not really a problem. Peace, wholeness, wholeness when there is no peace. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus will say very similar words. Beware when people say peace, peace. In verse 12, it says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. In other words, they weren't even ashamed of what they did. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. The implication being the armies are coming. The destruction is coming. They're not going to survive in the time of their punishment. They will be cast down, says the Lord. The implication being over and over and over again. You fell down. 
and you had an opportunity to get up. But there's going to come a time after rejection and resistance and rebellion that you're going to fall down and you're not going to be able to get up. These verses will blend together in verses 13 through 22. One of the most difficult things about Bible study is to try and figure out who's talking. In verses 13, all the way to the end of the chapter, there's God's voice. There's the prophet's voice. There's the people's voice. And so one of the challenges that we're going to have from here on is asking the question, who's speaking? Is it God? Is it the prophet? Or is it the people? God declared that the fields would be ruined in verses 13 and 17. The cities are going to be destroyed in verse 17. The people are either going to be slain or taken captive in verse 19. They're going to be drinking poison in verse 14. And later on in chapter 9, verse 15. In chapter 23, verse 15, they're going to experience an earthquake in verse 16. They're going to be attacked by venomous snakes in verse 17. They're going to be crushed and broken in verse 21. How does that sound? Pretty terrible. In verse 13, it says, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. This one's easy, huh? This one's easy because you're told who's speaking. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. The leaf shall fade. The things that I have given them, they'll pass away from them. The Lord compares the people to plants and produce that produce no fruit. The leaves are dead. Jesus uses the exact same imagery in the New Testament. Remember when he curses the fig tree? Remember when he insists that a fruit tree should bear fruit. And now... Jeremiah compares the people like images of dead plants. And by the way, in the ancient world, guess what they did with dead plants? They gathered them together and they burned them. Because even dead plants have at least some useful function. But your first choice isn't to burn them. Your first choice of a plant is to cultivate it and to water it and to hope that it produces something worth having. The people of Judah and Jerusalem are about to speak. They understand that they're being punished by God. So the people determine that they're going to flee for their lives. In verse 15, it says, we looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of hell... And there was trouble, by the way, almost word for word. These words are going to be repeated in chapter 14, verse 19. We looked for shalom, but trouble came. We looked for a time of health, but really there was illness. In verse 16, it says the snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the kneeing of his strong ones. For they have come and devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it. Remember, Dan is the northernmost tribe and the border of Judea. In other words, this is the place where you enter into a foreign country. This would be like if we were talking and we talked about the Canadian border or the Mexican border. And this is the place where the invading armies Invade the sovereign land. The snorting of his horses was heard from the north. The idea is the invasion is coming. The whole land trembled at the sound of the kneeing of his strong ones. They come with overwhelming military advantage and armies. For they have come and devoured the land. In other words, this massive marching army consumes all of the resources. The city and those who dwell in it. Who's speaking? The Lord the prophet, the people, whoever's speaking, the image is dramatic. In verse 17, it says, For behold, I will send serpents among you, vipers which cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you. Now we know who's speaking, says the Lord. 
Then verse 17, he likens the enemies and the invading armies to snakes that cannot be charmed. In the Middle East, there was a common thing called snake charming. They would take a, a snake and they would play songs or sometimes they would through they would wheel and deal and they would remove the fangs. But the whole idea was to create the the image or the perception that something was deadly was no longer harmful. Here, the Lord is basically saying the invading enemies are like snakes or serpents that cannot be charmed. In other words, well, maybe it won't be as bad as they thought. Maybe they won't hurt us. Maybe they won't take over. Maybe everything will be fine. And the Lord saying, Everything is not going to be fine. The foreign intrigues, the political policies of the government of Jerusalem and Judea, that was the snake charming. The, the false leaders and the false religious leaders thought through intrigue and negotiation. They could make a deal with the powers to the north or they could make a deal with the powers to the south. That in the end, they would somehow be able to negotiate their way to a peace. With honor. Some of you know that expression. A former president said that. Peace with honor. But there's not going to be a negotiated settlement. And then in verse 18 it says. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint within me. I think Jeremiah is speaking. The prophet in a poetic fashion begins this raging conversation that takes place inside of him because even though he's giving this awful message, he loves them and he cares about them. Their brokenness becomes his brokenness. Their grief becomes his grief. It's as if he's given an image. Imagine you were given an image. Imagine that you could see the pain and the horror as you see bombed out villages. Imagine you were in Cambodia in the, in the 1970s and you saw the massive graves and the mounds of skulls. Imagine you were in Auschwitz or Dachau and you saw the burnt out buildings in Berlin. And imagine you saw the emaciated people. Imagine you saw the consequences of the wickedness of Hitler. Imagine you are able to see this in advance and that somehow, some way you can stop it. Imagine you see the Twin Towers burning and falling and you see these massive buildings and you see 3,000 people dead. And you have somehow, you have the ability to stop it. You have the ability to warn them. You have the ability to make it all go away. Jeremiah expresses his grief and his sorrow, his sensitivity and his sincerity. And later, Je Jeremiah is going to talk about his disgust and revulsion. And Jeremiah is going to weep. He will weep over the city as he contemplates its destruction, just like Jesus will do centuries later as he stumbles and he falls as he's carrying the cross. And remember, he begins to weep over Jerusalem as he has this picture of the events that are going to unfold in the not-too-distant future because a group of people have rejected their Messiah. They've rejected his claims. They don't believe him even for a minute. And he sees the hordes of the armies of Rome come in and kill the people by the tens of thousands. In verse 19, it says, listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country is not the Lord in Zion is not her king in her. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images with foreign idols? Listen, the voice who's speaking. It's the Lord, isn't it? The cry of the daughter of my people, the Lord hears. He hears when the destruction is taking place. Why is this happening to us? 
Why is this happening to us? Why are these armies being allowed to invade our country? Why are our walls being destroyed? Why are our children being killed? Why are our daughters being taken captive? Is not the Lord in Zion? Did God leave us? Did God forsake us? Is not her king inside of her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images? The Lord answers their question. Why is all of this happening? You rejected and resisted and you turned from me. You practiced idolatry and you refused to turn from your idolatry. What's Jeremiah making reference to? In verse 19, it might be the exile. In verse 20, it might be the drought. The people say, God has failed us. God answers, no, I didn't fail you. I begged you. I pleaded with you. I sent message after message and prophet after prophet and warning after warning and circumstance after circumstance. I asked you, I begged you, I pleaded you, please turn from your sin. Turn to God. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. The constant provocation of the idolatry caused a righteous anger to well up inside of God. The idols were the proof. The importation of the foreign gods or goddesses are the proof. He's saying... Look around you. Look even as the invading army is coming. Look as they, as they capture your little statues of Dagon. Look as they capture your statues of Baal. Look at the Ashtaroth. Look at all of the little things that they're capturing. The things that you love. The things that you cherish. The things that you held on to. The things that you thought would save you. And then in verse 20. Maybe one of the most quoted passages, not only in the book of Jeremiah, but in the Bible. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we're not saved. Few things are more stark in its emptiness and in its terror. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. The statement is a proverb. In other words, the people had missed their God-given opportunity to be saved. Here's the people are crying. It's too late. We've gone too far. We've crossed the line. There's no turning back. By the way, harvest comes from April to June. Summer is the time when summer fruits are gathered. If the harvest fails, there's still hope from the summer. If the summer fails, there's no hope. In other words, there's a sense in which, hey, if this doesn't work out, this will work out. But if both of them fail, there's no hope. And when the Bible says, and we are not saved. Remember, saved means a lot of different things in the Bible. It can mean saved from the enemy. It can be saved from a famine. It can be saved from sin, depending on the context. Saved from judgment. Those of you who, like me, grew up playing baseball, when you go up to bat, how many strikes are you allowed? Three. If you play basketball, how many fouls are you allowed before they eject you from the game? Is it five or six? Five. Five fouls, you're out. Three strikes, you're out. How many opportunities are you given by God in this life? Three strikes and you're out. Five fouls and you're out. Over and over and over. But here seems to be the implication, at least in this passage. The curtain had fallen for Jerusalem. There were no more chances. There would be no more chances. There would be zero chances. You know, it's interesting to me when you read that passage, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Invariably, I'm speaking to a person that this is their last chance. Can I say for certain that's you? No. Will you be given another chance? Perhaps. Will you be given several chances? Perhaps. 
I don't know. I don't have the power to see things that I haven't been allowed to see. But God knows the truth about you. God knows the truth about your circumstances and God knows the truth about your heart. And then in verse 20, when it says, for the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me again. Jeremiah is identifying with the people. His preaching hasn't yielded the desired results. Jeremiah sees their judgment. He sees their hurt. He sees their deprivation. He sees their pain. All of a sudden, their wound becomes his wound. The expression, I am mourning, literally means, in the original language it reads, I am black. The implication being, I am. There's no sunshine. There is, it, it's, it's, it's really a, a Hebrew expression that speaks of a devastating, overwhelming depression. And maybe some of you have experienced that at least one time in your life where it looked like all the doors had closed. It looked like all of the chances were over. It looked like you have this, you have this, this suffocating sense that there was nothing that you could do. Astonishment has taken hold of me, literally, to fast or to bind, to tie tightly. The, the overwhelming implication is Jeremiah is basically saying, I'm being strangled by the vision that I'm receiving. I'm being choked and bound. I feel like I can't go on. It's overwhelming me when I think about what's about to happen. And then in verse 22, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the help of the daughter of my people? This, again, is one of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible. It's one of the most quoted verses in the book of Jeremiah. The prophet is asking in sheer terror, in total astonishment, in absolute emotional devastation. If Ephraim lacks what was given to Ephraim. If everything that was been given to the people of God. They were given the word of God. They were given the testimony of God. They were given the privilege of the prophets. They were given... All of the stuff that God gave. If God did all of this for all of these people for hundreds of years. Then who has any hope whatsoever? This is what Paul means in the New Testament when he says. There is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. It isn't like there's a second or a third option. When you look at the pain and you look at the suffering and you look at the problem and you look at how people are estranged from God and you wonder how come they won't take advantage of the life-giving knowledge that comes from the Bible and the life-giving love and grace and mercy that comes from the Savior. Today on my radio program, a man called me and he was utterly upset. And he asked me a question about his friend who happens to embrace Judaism. And he said, my friend's Jewish and they're going to die one day. And what's going to happen to him? He said, are they going to go to hell? And you know what I said? Yes, they're going to go to hell. People go to hell because... They don't have a right relationship with God in Christ. And people go to heaven because they do. People don't go to hell because they're Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist. People go to hell because the Bible says all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Each and every single human being who is on the planet Earth, who has sinned against God and rebelled against God is going to hell. Unless they turn from their sin. Unless they embrace the remedy that has been given. And so he says, is there no balm in Gilead? The idea is, is there no medicine? The people need help. They need help. Why is Ephraim still sick? Why aren't the people saved? 
Why do the people reject, neglect, ignore the Bible? Why? Why don't people come to grips with what's going on? According to Pliny, there was this plant, a balsam that was produced only in Palestine. There was this special plant and it was used for medicinal purposes. And some have suggested the Styrex tree is a possible source. But the balm was there in abundance. And Gilead, by the way, was east of the Jordan, north of Moab. There was this incredible plant, and I don't think it was marijuana with medicinal purposes. That's not what I think it was. But it was some kind of plant that if you boiled this plant or you, you somehow used this plant, it would, it would take scrapes and cuts like aloe vera. I don't know if you've ever had aloe vera and you, you put it in the wound and your, your skin comes back pink and healthy like a baby. There was this life-giving plant. And for whatever reason, the people wouldn't take advantage of the cure. No physician meant no prophet, no teacher, no scribe, no wise man, no priest, no spiritual leader. What he's what Jeremiah is saying is, isn't there anyone? Isn't there anyone? Isn't there anyone? Who will open up their Bible and apply the timeless truths of the word of God and then apply it to the soul so that people can experience wholeness and wellness and life and mercy and forgiveness and hope. Isn't there anyone who will do this? Literally. Why has the new flesh which grows over the wound. Why hasn't the new flesh come up? Why hasn't the wound closed? Why won't the healing come? Do you know the answer? The false prophets had made a wrong diagnosis and they had prescribed a wrong remedy. And the wounds of the nation were open and bleeding and infected. The false prophets and the false teachers said, there is no problem. And you're just fine the way you are. You don't have to change your mind. You don't have to change your heart. You don't have to change your life. But Jeremiah knows that that's not true. He knows that the people have to abandon their sin and embrace their Lord. So why won't they repent? It isn't logical. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't serve any purpose. And the consequences are enormous. And this is just chapter 8. So why continue in sin? Why continue in rebellion? I think you know the answer. But you need to be reminded... Sin will never satisfy and rebellion will never, ever provide what you really want and what you really need. You see, the truth is there's nothing more wonderful and there's nothing more beautiful and there's nothing more satisfying than to have your sins forgiven, than to have your guilt removed, than to have your anxiety disappear. And to have it replaced with a promise that you're going to go to heaven instead of hell. And that, my friends, is the gospel. That, my friends, is the whole meaning of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we see over and over again in the words of Jeremiah and in the actions of Jeremiah repeated in the life and the ministry of our Lord. 
One weeps over a city and the other weeps over a city. One cries. It doesn't have to be this way. Why? Why? Why is it this way? And Heavenly Father, I pray for each man and each woman here. I pray for each person who loves you and wants to honor you. Lord, I pray for each person who desperately wants to love you and serve you and obey you. Lord, I pray for each person who struggles with personal sin and personal doubt, who find themselves on this merry-go-round of disappointment and despair. Lord, I pray for each person who wants to just simply love you and to serve you and to obey you. For every person who wants to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that they can live a life that is God-honoring and God-pleasing. Lord, for every person who no longer looks to themselves as the satisfying solution to the problem of sin, but will trust Jesus completely, wholly, and exclusively for life, for love, for forgiveness, for hope, for redemption, for reconciliation. And I pray for each person, Lord, who for whatever reason decides that today is not the day. That today is not the day. That they know in their heart that they're going to continue a life of rebellion. They're going to continue a life of resisting you. They're going to continue a life of rejecting you. Lord, I don't know how much time is left and I don't know how many chances are available. But Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would speak to their heart. Lord, I pray that you would break their heart. Lord, I pray that they would not play so horrible a game with their life or their future. But that they would love you now. That they would repent now. That they would serve you now. In Jesus' name, amen.